There once was a ship that put to sea, and the name of the ship was the Belly of Tea. The winds blew hard, her bow dipped down, oh blow me, bully boys blow. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tugging is done, we'll take our leave and go. She had not been two weeks from shore, when down on her a right whale bore. The captain called all hands and swore he'd take that whale in tow. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tugging is done, we'll take our leave and go. Before the boat had hit the water, the whale's tail came up and caught her. All hands to the side, harpooned and fought her when she dived down low. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tugging is done, we'll take our leave and go. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tugging is done, we'll take our leave and go. No whales freed, and the captain's mind was not on greed, but he belonged to the whaleman's creed. She took that ship in tow. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tugging is done, we'll take our leave and go. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tugging is done, we'll take our leave and go. All right, we are live. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond Oak Island live stream. My name is Jeff Freeman. I'm your host. And right over here, we have my co-host, Jack Campbell. Jack, how are you doing today? I'm doing real good, Jeff. We're seeing the sun for the first time in three days today. <laughs> yeah, it was pouring down rain here a little bit ago. So, folks, if uh, for some reason uh, all of a sudden everything freezes up, you'll know it's because I lost my Internet or my power at the house here. Um, hey, folks, I'm really excited. We're getting back into some Oak Island stuff and beyond Oak Island stuff here today. Um, and I wanted to say for those of you that are out on our YouTube channel, we really appreciate it if you'd click on that subscribe button. And if you want to have information, uh, get notified when we have new content coming on, click on that, uh, that notification bell. And if you don't, just unclick it and then you won't get those notifications coming to you. Um, but that way, you know, when we have new content coming on the show, we also have our Patreon channel. So if you'd like to help support the show, we appreciate that very much. And that is out on patreon.com. Uh, and the channel there is uh, jfree906. Uh, same thing over on the Twitch side, jfree906 is there as well. Uh, we are really excited today because we have returning to the show uh, uh, a gentleman who was actually my very first guest uh, when we ventured out on our own here. We started out, this was uh, the end of November last year. Uh, and, uh, we had our very first guest and we did our best, to, in, you know, to, with him, uh, and, uh, we've asked him to come back and uh, share some of the new work that he is uh, covering right now. And I'm going to read this a little bit about, uh, who he is. Of course, this is Christian Roper and I'll bring him on in just a second here. Uh, Christian is a photographer, actor, filmmaker, and explorer. And his dad was also an explorer. He graduated from the university of Texas at Austin, uh, with a marketing degree. And he owns Roper Media LLC production company focus, focusing on documentary work. Uh, and he has a website. We're going to be talking about this as we go along. The sunken silver.com website. 
uh, for his documentary. And without further ado, I'd like to bring on Christian Roper. Christian, hey, thank you for coming on. Welcome to the Curse of John. Absolutely. Good to see everyone again. I tell you what, I, I've really, you know, it's been one of those things where I've been looking forward to having you back on the show for a long time now because of, you know, the the uh, time we got to spend together last time. Um, and I know you've really done a lot more work, um, you know, for your research in, in, in uh, I guess it would be eastern Texas uh, around the Hendricks Lake and all of that. Um, so we're really looking forward to expanding on your research or hearing more about it today. Um, one thing that I would like to do, if we could, and I and this is for the benefit, our group has grown leaps and bounds since you were last here, um, and there's maybe a lot of people that may have not seen, um, you know, they, they, it's been a long time since they've seen the episode on Beyond Oak Island that you were on the very first one, um, which I think is an honor in itself to be on the very first uh, episode, but um, you were on that very first episode, so a lot of people may have forgotten exactly what all this all was about. Um, and, and also, the we did bring up our uh, interview that we did with you. We brought that back up here a few weeks ago so people could revisit that. But I'd like to kind of step back to that time, if we could, and talk a little bit about um, that show and your research looking into Hendricks Lake. Uh, before we do that, let's talk about, you know, how what got you started uh, as you know, looking into pirate treasure and Jean Lafitte, if you don't mind. Well, anyone who grows up in the states of Texas or Louisiana will hear stories about Jean Lafitte. Um, he, he kind of gets all the credit, um, but he and his brother were engaged in privateering activities and a load of um, just criminality across those two states for about a decade or more in the early 1800s. And uh, I was seven years old when I was told one of those countless stories that plague Texas and Louisiana of pirate treasure somehow never reaching its destination. And one of those was about Hendricks Lake. I didn't know about Hendricks Lake. I knew that I lived 200 miles from the coast. So when you hear a story about pirate treasure, you're kind of wondering, you know, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Pirate mm -hmm. treasure is on the beach. It's it's in, in shipwrecks. So why would anyone look in, in a lake 200 miles from the coast? Right. So that's initially how I got intrigued. I was seven years old. Uh, both of my parents were divers. And this one trip I was with my father um, at a place called Athens Scuba Park. And they've got this cool little backstory in that episode, talking about me being young, hearing this story from a, a treasure hunter at that park. And I did not know at the time, but he was looking into it pretty heavily. And he just gave me the very vague details of pirate treasure being stolen, um, being transported throughout Texas, and somehow ending up in this lake. And at seven years old, you're kind of, you know, that lake's only an hour away from where I live. Yeah. You know, let's, let's go find it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I've actually and, got a picture I'm going to show real quick. Go ahead. I'm, I'm going to show, bring this picture up. Show this is uh, the young uh, Christian Roper here. Yep, getting started with all that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I still remember that day. Actually, that was um, at a state park in Texas, and I remember that little cove right there because behind it, we saw a massive uh, water moccasin, probably oh. the biggest moccasin I've ever seen. But I remember that day being super. Oh nervous about getting into the water and, and swimming around that day. 
Um, I don't blame but, you. Yeah, I don't either. I would be too. <laughs> that's right. But that, that story just stuck with me um, the entire time. And, wow. you know, almost almost two decades later, um, we, some, some friends and I just revisited the story, um, not knowing how much of that still existed, not knowing if there was any truth to it, any, um, whether it was just a, a story created by somebody or if there was actual historical accuracy to this right. preserved in some of the storytelling in East Texas. Um, we've done about two years of tracking people down. Um, one thing that I did not know at seven years old was that people did some pretty exhaustive searches for this in Hendricks Lake and other surrounding areas. Um, just based off of a story, there was not any historical information that would have led them to that spot. It was all just passed down information saying something is at the bottom of this lake, something is in this water system, this county. Um, but just two decades later, we revisited and started tracking down cousins and sons of old searchers and historians. And it all became this kind of amalgamation that is the documentary that I've been working on. And that was part of the, the reason that we were invited to take part in that show was the amount of work that we had already done looking into it. And I know a lot of other people that have been involved in Beyond have written books and, and been experts on subjects. And mm -hmm. sadly, you don't get to see the uh, the intricacies to their work. It's it's right. very watered down for TV. But at the same time, it's, it's a lot of exposure and, and getting some lesser known stories out to people. There are lots of other stories with all the same elements that Oak Island has. Right. But yeah. uh, a lot of people are just unaware of, of Oak Islands in their own backyards. And so that was uh, the big deal for us was that we, for the first time ever um, through TV, got to get this story out to the public and preserve that for the, the next kind of generation of, of people wanting to continue the story. Right. Now, did you get contacted by Oak Island or by our Prometheus for the show? Yes, I did. Um, it was very early 2020, and that was right about the time the pandemic started. And so I wasn't I wasn't sure if anything was happening. And right. then I found out how Los Angeles studios work, where they say, you know, we'll be there in two days. Uh, all of a sudden you are going to be the main character in this episode. <laughs> I was under the impression that, you know, I might provide one line about a story in this episode about a ton of pirates. Mm -hmm. So no, no, we, you know, we've, we've got a plane ticket for you. We need, we need you to test negative and get on a flight. Yeah. Oh. So, uh, it's kind of one day you're not sure if it's happening the next day, you know, you're the main character in a pilot. That's, that's kind of how these shows work. It's a lot of work on the uh, unseen side that a lot of people don't understand. I think the the um, special that they did with Maddie, where it showed behind the scenes on the island and how all those camera crews. Oh yeah, that was other, awesome. Yeah, there's okay. a lot of work that's that goes unappreciated in these shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely loved that particular uh, drilling down episode. It, it really did. It, it gave us all a look behind the scenes of the, I mean, everything from the caterers and everybody eating lunch to the camera guys and the sound guys and the, and the producers that are there. And 
bombing everybody around with cameras. It really is uh, quite a an ordeal that we don't. You're right. We don't. We don't. We never see that. And that's the by design, of course. When you're watching the show, you don't know that there's 15 people standing off to the side that you don't see over there with, you know, sitting at a table with you know uh, sound equipment and everything, and giving orders. Okay, you know, get a get a close up on Gary Drayton or whatever. You know, uh, what he's digging right there or something. But um, that's really very it was very interesting to see that and you're like we can only imagine um and i got and i do have some pictures here we're going to jump into a little bit about that and 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 jack kind of prefaced it there by asking about how you got involved with this in the first place um being asked to come out and like you said you thought you might just be given a, a little bit of a you know a few lines of of text or something next thing you know you're on a plane and you're out here you know pumping fist with uh maddie blake i mean so you got to meet everybody. Tell us a little bit about that experience, about coming to the war room and, and meeting everyone. I got to meet everyone. It's, it's one of those things that you don't really appreciate until you're right there. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to comprehend the situation until I was already off the plane. <laughs> um, they said, okay, you know, show up, uh, you know, at this time. Great. And then you're in there and the cameras are rolling and you say, oh, and my, Am I prepared for this? You know, what am I going to say? Yeah. Um, but producers were great. All the crew was great. Um, half the fun of it is getting to interact, uh, you know, offset. You know, I, I loved getting to know Maddie yeah. off camera. Every time we were off camera, we were talking to each other about various subjects that, that we both love. Mm. Um, it's just really cool. Um, the, the first time I saw rick and marty was in the room mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're like okay you know these are guys that i used to watch in high school um you know i, I used to be very into the show at the beginning and it's like if if when this show started and i was on the couch you know watching season one and, and season two and getting into it mm -hmm. i never could have predicted that you know, somewhere down that road, I would be in that room. Yeah, I, I don't know yeah. how that happened. Sometimes <laughs> weird stuff happens, but that was great. Got to also meet Gary Drayton. He gave me some awesome advice. I think a lot of this is that, that I'll take away from it is not being able to say that I did something. It was nothing that I accomplished, but it was rather what was given to me, mm. um, whether that was advice or information. Uh, the show did a good job of presenting, you know, them uh, giving ideas to me. Gary Drayton kind of mm -hmm. took me aside and, and gave me all these metal detecting tips. And, right. Wow. Um, and that's Maddie, kind of valuable. Yeah. 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 Maddie gave me all this advice. And, and part of what I'll take away from it is, you know, all these these big characters, they're, they're normal people, despite what you see on TV. Uh, they're, they're not, you know. 100% the show. They're normal people outside of that, and in the show, they're they're still themselves. Right. Um, it seemed like but, they made you comfortable too when you went in. And you were talking, especially with Rick and Marty. I mean, they they put you at ease right off right off the top. It seemed like. Yeah, yeah. We talked about a lot. They were very knowledgeable about everything. Um. The 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 way it works is, you know, you, you've kind of got an idea of what's going to be talked about going into it and they despite not being trained actors despite not being these uh you know 
the the workings of Hollywood or whatever, like someone like Maddie could go in and and he's trained to do that. He's trained to to yeah. take a subject, speak about it. Rick and Marty had to learn that on their own. Yeah. And so that that's what they were doing in the war room. They can they can take a subject, um, give their own little spin on it, spit it back to Maddie. Maddie, you know, he's trained to give that back. But but Rick and Marty were unpolished going in. And so I haven't watched season one compared to today to see if they've gotten any better with the, yeah. with their confidence on camera. But it, it was it was awesome to see that. And it was very casual and organic. One thing that I was worried about going into this was you always hear that, you know, these shows they're doing something funny on the side. They're you know oh, yeah. you know they they fake stuff or do whatever. I was so worried about that because for for two years to this point, the Hendrix Lake story had been, you know, mine. Like I controlled the the narratives. All right. Um, I was doing this research. The last thing I wanted to do was, you know, have something blow up in my face. But it was awesome. I, I can't um, really commend the the production team enough, or or the studios, or, or anyone involved. It was so organic and. You, you saw in Oak Island, there's, you know, 10, 15 person crews. Mm -hmm. What it was in Texas was, you know, how many people can we fit into this boat? <laughs> so yeah. we can get yeah. one person in the boat filming. Yep. We can sneak a second person and maybe a second cameraman if he's laying down. Yeah. <laughs> we can get a producer in there and we need um, an assistant on Snake Watch. And we, we've got to hide, you know, audio somewhere else. So that was yeah. essentially what it was. It was very run and gun. You know, yeah. these guys knew what they're doing. We were worried, you know, you say these, these studio guys, they're not used to the, the Texas heat and the Texas environment and everything that we come across. But it was it was awesome. We, we forgot they were there half the time. They said, you know, put your search together. We will follow you. Yeah. And, uh, that's that's essentially what happened in that episode. Yeah, and that's something we saw also in the in that episode with Maddie and the um, on the drilling down the behind the scenes. We we had an opportunity to see them uh, doing that, and like you said, being invisible basically, and they're just there, just ignore us and just go about your business, and we're going to just record everything. And that's something that we you know we like the fact that you know that that's what this show and other shows like mine are all about is because, you know, something you alluded to is the fact that you have hours and hours and hours of film uh, that are being taken. And then we see this show, you know, we get, you know, snippets here and there of stuff. Um, and then they, they put all that, they all, they, you know, the, all this, a lot of it falls to the cutting room floor and they put together a basically 43 minutes worth of actual show uh, based upon what they, all the film that they have. Um, and so that's got to be a tough job in itself. But man, all the work that goes into putting it all together uh, is just phenomenal. And and again, I've heard that from other guests that we've had on um, that have worked with the same teams, and they've all said the same thing about how they are so professional. They even that we've seen a guy in the uh, there was it was on that episode where a guy was actually filming with Rick and Marty, and he stepped. They were walking in the swamp on those cardboard. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, on the uh, plywood, pl you know, plywood laying out there. And he actually stepped off the end, and psh, he started going down in the muck. And he was holding up his camera. He didn't want to get the camera, you know, soaked. So he was holding the camera up. But you know, I mean, it's just it it, it happens. But that's 
that's kind of neat to be able to see that. You know, you mentioned about the uh, the, the, uh, the snakes and stuff like that. And of course, you know, I, I can't, I would be amiss if I did not share, you know, the, the picture of uh, you guys were heading out to the lake with Maddie Blake and you were telling him about all the critters that could be potentially deadly to him out there. And the look on his face was priceless. And I had to share this. I know I've done it before, but I mean, you know, you guys are used to it. And I, I, I can't imagine being used to that sort of thing. But Maddie, of course, not being used to it. I would <laughs> put the look on his face was priceless. Uh, you know, did you guys, you know, you had to, you mentioned the snake watch. Did you guys actually, did anybody actually see anything that they had to keep away from the crew or, or, you know, stuff like that going on when you were out on the lake? No. So we got off easy. Um, we got away with filming by having lost a single radio in the water. Wow. And I think one of the crew members was stung by a wasp. Oh, wow. And that, and that was it. <laughs> so uh, there are a lot of things to watch out at the lake. If you're in a boat, you're pretty much safe. But I think Maddie brought up on a previous show that you, you don't want to be situated kind of in the shade underneath the tree. Yeah. Um, because water moccasins will get up in the tree. And uh, one of the most prominent reasons that they bite people is because they, they fall off um, into people's boats. Mm. Um, also lots of water snakes. They're all four types of, of venomous snakes found in Texas can be found at Hendrix Lake. Wow. Uh, it was in the fifties. It was actually known for the overpopulation of rattlesnakes. It doesn't seem like a place you would find rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes are all over Texas. We have not seen one of those at the lake. We have not seen a coral snake at the lake. I have seen a moccasin. Um, just something to always worry about. And, and that was one of the things in the documentary when we would contact people. And a lot of times it would have been decades since they thought about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would contact someone and say, hey, you know, we found out in the, in the 60s you went with your father to this lake. Do you remember anything about that? Without even finishing the sentence, they would, you know, start cussing and, and say, "Oh, you know, those snakes hanging out of the trees." It was, <laughs> oh man, you know, wow. I was I was ten years old and terrified. Um, but it's it's one of those places. Uh, it's it's pretty ominous, and the wildlife kind of gives credence to the stories. It's like Oak Island in the sense that it's got all the right physical features and mm -hmm. um, whether or not you've got a historical tie leading you to believe that there's anything at that location you just visit and you see the eeriness of everything right. and you say okay you know the the story fits the the physical location gives credence to the story rather than the story doing the opposite mm -hmm. um and, and Maddie always made the comparison to the swamp. He said it reminded him of the swamp. Yeah. It's just this nasty uh, oxbow. And, you know, it's it's nasty to dive, dangerous dive. Um, but the, the funny thing is, in that driving clip, I kind of had that presentation already done. My, my father teaches wilderness survival and first aid. And so when he gets to everything venomous in Texas, you know, I, I've just heard him say hundreds of times, you know, run through the snakes, everything to be scared of. And so I was doing that with, with Maddie. Mm -hmm. And say, so, you know, if, if you get bitten, this is what's going to happen. 
one of the scenes, I don't know if it made the final episode, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but we were, we were talking in the war room about moccasins and how that's the prevalent snake at, at Hendrix Lake. And a lot of times they will bite and chew to envenomate. And so mm-hmm. sometimes the, the snake will be attached for several minutes after, and it's not unheard of to have people show up to the hospital, to emergency rooms with a snake still attached. Oh. Oh. And so I, I just said that on camera. And then I, I think the, the uh, you know, you hear off to the side, you know, producers are, are, are cheering. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, oh, yes, like finally oh, yeah. someone gets a little bit of emotion out of the brothers. Uh, but it was oh, it was man. fun to to talk about that for a little bit to some oh, people man. up up north. Wow, I get it. Yeah, that's I tell you, that's uh, yeah. There's there's so many critters. You know, I I live in in uh, you know uh, western Pennsylvania, and there's not a whole lot here to worry about. I can pretty much go hike in or whatever, or hang out by the lake, or you know, and I don't have to worry about all those kinds of things. But uh, but then again, you know, we may not have the excitement of having possible treasure uh there either i guess well there's you know rebel gold or something that's a possibility around here we can get into that later but anyway uh that kind of thing that you would have there um and and i know that you and and i got this aerial shot i'm going to show up the lake real quick um this was uh and i'm and i'm not sure this might have been one of the drones that the production company had up in the air uh kind of getting an idea of this lake now this lake you had mentioned on the show that this lake was formed by the river changing its direction at some point. Is that how that happened? Yeah, the, the Sabine River, which mm-hmm. kind of comes into play in the story. It, originally, the Texas border with the Oklahoma Territory to the north was the Sabine River. Mm, okay. So the way that this story made sense was that the other side of this lake was was freedom um, from Spanish territory in getting this. Uh, this wagon load or these six wagon loads um, across the river, you know, freedom was on the other side. And so the, the point was at right. some point there was a kind of a, um, what's the word? It was a trap set. Oh. And so before they made it to the other side, some event happened, something ended up in the lake. The exact details will vary depending on who you ask. There's a, specific uh kind of formula that we followed for this story there are so many variations but there's one that's that stayed the same for almost 100 years now um and that's that's kind of what what we followed it's a really pretty lake and uh kind of this bend right here in the in the middle on that left side okay it's about 10 feet it's about 10 feet deeper than the rest of the lake. And okay. part of that is because they blew open the bottom with dynamite in the late fifties. Oh, really? mm-hmm. wow. There's what a, what did they do that for? Uh, well, at the bottom is what's called blue gumbo. And the idea is to a treasure hunter, the idea that there's no treasure is foreign to them. If they don't find it where they're looking, it's obviously deeper. Ah, right. Yeah. Or it's a little bit in a different direction. So, the the hunter that was looking at the time was convinced that it had sunk so far down into this gumbo that he needed to dynamite the bottom open. And the only thing he did with that was blew a bunch of fish and snakes out of the water. Uh, the, the daughter that um, Gary talked to 
talked about how she pressed the button, the the plunger button on the oh, dive wow. and great. blew all of this stuff out of the water and was traumatized. Oh no! And the the lake is physically changed. There are, are spots in it. Gary knows the history of it. He knows you know what's been done where, but there are spots of it where you can see you know land bridges built out or holes remaining that have been there for 50 or 60 years. Wow. It's a, a pretty uh, kind of the last piece of untouched wilderness in that county. There's, wow. if, if you fly over, there's a lot of strip mining, and it's just gray everywhere you can see. It's a, a wow. couple towns in gray everywhere, and then there's this green patch. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of that green patch, you find Hendricks Lake, Wow. And a uh, kind of a sister water formation to that right side. Okay, yeah, that's it's really it is really neat looking. It's it's very pretty um, and and safe, you know, from all those critters from in the, from the air. But that's a it's an interesting story about blowing those up and all the snakes and stuff that were in the water at the time and the fish. Oh my goodness! Um, I want to spend just a little bit more time because I know we got a lot to talk about your research, your new research that you have going on. But I'll. I'll just expand on this just a little bit. Now, here's a shot. Uh, this was, again, from the episode um, when you were looking for Lafitte's treasure um, that could possibly be in the lake. And this was, I guess, one of your inspirations for that, uh, Calvin uh, Wilcher. Um, tell us a little bit about Calvin and how he, you know, what he worked with on you, you know, with you on this. Yeah, I'm not sure if a lot of people were able to make the connection in the episode, but um Hopefully, if you did, this was the the person that told me that story when I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. And so when I was told, I mean, almost as last minute as can, as can be, there were a couple of days before the crew was flying down. And I believe they had trouble getting a um, some sort of, of scan team that's used on Oak Island. They had trouble getting them down to Texas due to you know, quarantine protocol and said, do you know anyone that we can get last minute? Mm-hmm. And I said, yep, yep. I, I really know someone. Uh, Calvin's been treasure hunting for many decades and, and diving for even longer. He's kind of the guy that you go to in this area if you need something right. recovered. And not only is it experience, but he's got kind of these insane ideas he's always building his own projects the amount of work that i've seen him do um in involving hendrix lake and the the strange rigs he's built i remember the first time we had to get that boat in he built like a a 20 foot trailer hitch extender really so he could even get this boat in and out of the lake oh wow um he's, he's done so many creative projects all the mastermind behind everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also got his son and his kind of his right hand man, Steve Irwin, that were involved in the show. They did all the diving. Uh, we, I think, I don't remember the exact week. I remember we were hit by a huge storm. I do not remember if if that was a hurricane or not that was kind of uh, brushing up against eastern Texas, but that was a. a Tough situation in the rain. I think we only got divers in once. Yeah. Found some wood. People always ask me, you know, have you have you found anything since? And I said, well, in the episode, we found some wood. And, and since then, we found a lot more wood. So uh, we've also brought up a, a bit of metal. 
Um, and all of that has been a result of, of Calvin experience and, and very good sonar estimating where things are, mm -hmm. really training me how to be a zero visibility recovery diver. Right. Um, That's got to be incredible in itself right there for sure. Yeah. Not he's got more stories than anyone. I bet. Yeah, now, you know, we know that, uh, and, and that was part of the thing that happened on the show is that, um, you know, you guys were out. First, I think you spent, it, 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 at least it seemed like to us, we got the impression there was two days. One day you went out and you did the scanning, and then the next day you went out and, and got divers in the water. That's, at least that's the way it came across to us. Um, but uh, you've had some spots that you wanted to go out and find. But then again, once you got the divers in the water and then the thunderstorm rolled in, and of course, you've got to get everybody out of the water at that point. Um, and, and get to safety. Um, so we saw that happening. And then you're right. We were left with the impression of, oh, wow, what did they find? Did, did they go back? Did they did they dig down? Because he was getting hits with the underwater pulse. Did he call it a pulse detector? Uh, the, the metal detector, he was the yellow one that we, they were using. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he got some hits. And all of a sudden, that was it. I mean, then the show ended. We're like, well, wait a minute. What, what, what did you guys find? What, what about those hits? You know, we never got to find out about that. Um, there's a, a, just a quick shot of you out there on the, on the lake scanning. And then of course, uh, and then Gary, and then Gary was very inf influential in this whole process as well. Um, from what you've told me before, tell us a little bit about Gary. He's one of the best record keepers I think I've ever met. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything that he wouldn't be able to find out if, if he put his mind to it. Um, so the way we met Gary, he's, he's a researcher that loves Texas history. Mm -hmm. And he loves these, these strange pockets of Texas history that don't often get talked about. And our first introduction to him was through the research he had done on the, the trail the supposed smuggling trail that uh, yes um was involved in the story so hendrix lake bordered the smuggling trail the story was uh there was a trap set stuff was pushed in and uh, never recovered mm -hmm. and we knew that he had done extensive work on the smuggling trail called trammel's trace that's and it. trace yeah we said you know even if he's the biggest skeptic in the story at the at the time that we announced the documentary he was like one of the first two or three people that we contacted mm -hmm. and we were just hoping and praying that he had heard this story before. If not, that's fine. Just give us a, a few pieces of information about this, this trace. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, this is really weird. He, you know, seconds later we get this email back. He's like, I'm, I'm working on a book about that legend right now. Wow. So the last kind of wave of, public information about this legend occurred in the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. And so we contacted him in 2019. And so there were 50 years of silence in the story. Wow. And by some coincidence, there were two different parties kind of arriving to the same goal, wanting to preserve that legend mm -hmm. and bring it back after about 50 years and uh, just preserve the story and, and pass it down. And so we got together with him. We've recorded several interviews with him. And uh, it's just been awesome. He's, he's found so many side stories and uh, led us to so many people. I, 
the project would not have been anywhere close to the depth that it is without him. He's written a, a few wonderful books about treasure. I think he's got a really good understanding of what storytelling means to people. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is that his book and his research was never concerned with whether the treasure was, was real or fake or, um, you know, how did the story come to be? It was, how did this impact people's lives? Right. Uh, one of the coolest things I've come across is how universal storytelling, especially treasure stories can be mm -hmm. across different generations. I'm, I'm working with, you know, several different people who are well older than, than me in the documentary. And, you know, I can just sit down with them. There's no differences there. I can just, you know, immediately go into a treasure story and we can talk for hours. That's, yep. That's usually how every interview went. We get our interview content and then we spend three hours talking with a person about their own treasure stories and how they grew up with their own treasure stories. It's just a universal experience of having something that compels you as a kid. And, and now we've luckily got entertainment that can fulfill that. We've got magazines and books and um, TV shows that can keep that idea of searching for treasure in our lives. Um, even... Culturally, you know, I, I've been working with a lot of people outside of the U.S., um, a lot in, in South America, the Caribbean, Italy, through a number of things. And, and every time I bring up treasure, it's just this universal idea. Yeah, yeah. But now, curious when research. When you uh, did your research on Hendricks River and you did all your diving and all that, did you have to have permits for all that or is that kind of a freelance operation down there? So... We did not need a lot for the show. Um, when I was called, they just said, you know, please do not be on federal land. We, we can get it done if it's on private. So the majority of the lake is owned by um, a local business. Oh, okay. And they were able to go through all the channels for that. We have also on our end been able to go through all the channels. Um, we're also really good friends with the uh, landowner in the area that, that we get access to the lake from. It's been closed off for many decades, um, but we were lucky enough to be the first in, I mean, many decades to do anything. We've been very non-invasive and uh, I think we've come at it through a good angle. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a bit worried about, you know, you hear about all the, the funding they have. And when you think of Oak Island, you just think of these huge digs. Mm -hmm. uh, but what, what we did on ours was you know, very non-invasive. We get a boat in one day, uh, bring up what we can, identify it, and then we're, we're done. I, I like it being very closed off to the public. I think one day it would be awesome to to see it um, maybe categorized as a park or, or some yeah. sort of public park again. It, it was enjoyed by a lot of people in the, in the 50s and 60s. And since then it's been... Uh, very protected. Um, there's very few people that get to enjoy it now. There's some hunting that goes on nearby, and I understand completely why it's it's very closed off. Mm -hmm. um, but the opportunity we had to see it was awesome. I you know I don't know if I'll ever be able to give it up. Uh, you know I think even. 10 years down the road, I, I still might call a landowner and say, 
you know, I, I just want to see it one last time. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Oh yeah. Let's uh, let's jump over to uh, the man that uh, this uh, research, you know, and I know you've got a lot more that you've been working on. You mentioned something about foreign research that you've been working on. You've talked to people from other countries. So let's let's jump over and talk a bit, little bit about this man right here, Jean Lafitte. Tell us a little bit about him and uh, what you've discovered in your research about him. He's a privateer or a pirate or smuggling and all that. You know, you pick a word to describe him, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it fits in, in some situation or another. Uh, most people would associate him with Louisiana, which is why I thought it was pretty cool that we got the opportunity to attach him to Texas. Uh, a lot of the comments I got was, you know, I never realized that he, he was at one point based out of Texas. Mm -hmm. He was for about four years. Um, pirates were short-lived. Uh, you know, most of them, less than two years was their, uh, was the time that they spent actually engaged in piracy wow. before either, you know, being captured by, uh, you know, whoever it was going after pirates at, at the time. A lot of times it was, was the Spanish or whoever it may have been. Mm -hmm. uh, very short lived. Lafitte was one of the, the longest reigning. And part of the reason so, uh, part of part of the reason why that was so was because he was involved at a time when piracy had changed. Wow, the okay. value of stuff had really switched to goods and uh, slave labor. Oh, and so wow. perhaps the most accurate way of describing how Lafitte achieved prominence was um, slave importation. Wow. A lot of times that's you know not mentioned in stories. Uh, he was very keen on making money on the markets that were available in Texas and Louisiana. And a lot of the stories come about where he had these kind of, he had barracks where he would take, he would, he would steal slaves from a ship, primarily a lot of the, the Spanish slave importation in the Caribbean or the Gulf, um, he would he would a lot of times steal slaves, give them uh, to, to, I guess, middlemen um, throughout Texas and Louisiana, make a huge profit on this. Mm -hmm. He would also do the same with goods. He would do the same with spices. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times he would just steal ships, scuttle them for, for goods. And so this idea of Lafitte only being this traditional pirate where you you walk onto a ship there's all these chests full of treasure mm. you know full of silver and gold you, you throw it on your ship you leave um that's not how he accumulated his wealth right now at the same time there was a lot of that to be taken mm. um, we know he did stockpile to an extent there are records of him you know keeping stuff on the island we've got records of of um Particularly one I can think of right now is from the Mina expedition around 1816, 1817, okay. arriving in Galveston with, uh, I believe it was $200,000 worth of, of silver coinage. Right. Um, all wow. that was there. And so if anyone says they that he did not stockpile to an extent or that there's nothing of his to be found, Let's say, just for example, every single story attached to him involving treasure is not true. 
Okay. Yep. Then at the same time, I would say there is still something of his of incredible wealth to be found, particularly what he um, stockpiled and lost on the island in, in various shipwrecks. There's also the hurricane of 1818 where he lost, you know, a lot of his men, most of his oh, ships. Oh. They had to rebuild the entire island and uh, all that wealth was lost. Mm. So I think someone recommended a question the other day I saw that was, you know, is there any truth to pirates, you know, burying things or, or keeping stuff for later? Right. And I think a lot of that is um, just exaggerated storytelling and the truth with piracy and treasure. The truth with all treasure is in transportation. When goods get lost, when uh, shipwrecks, I believe it was... Um, Mel Fisher's recovery company that estimated about 10% of all Spanish colonial wealth was lost and is currently at the bottom of the ocean in, in shipwrecks. That's a vast amount of wealth. Right. Um, oh, yeah. The, the idea of, of guys going around and, and burying stuff, I think a lot of that is perhaps exaggerated, not in, not in every case, right. but I think it's one of those, you know, just pieces of storytelling that gets attached to to pirates. Yep. A lot of these guys, despite having all this wealth, were constantly on the run. Yeah. Um, they had nothing to spend it on, or or they immediately spent any sort of wealth on manpower, ships, weapons, whatever it might have been. Uh, I will say that there is truth to that with Captain Kidd. There is a true story about him physically burying something on the on an island. And I think perhaps in the next few years or so, um, with my knowledge of another search that's going on, you know, there, there may be something else uh, found related to Captain Kidd. He's one of the, the few exceptions where we can say, yes, he, he did bury stuff. He did, he did save stuff. Uh, uh, but th there were on occasion a few pirates who had so much wealth they did not know what to do with it. Right. Um, one situation I can think of in particular is Olivier Levasseur, who's a, a French uh, pirate um, known for attacks on Indian Ocean routes. And there was one uh, Portuguese ship called Nostra Senhora do Cabo, which had just been hit by a storm. And I, I, it was 30 or 40 cannons on the ship. To avoid sinking, they said, we need to throw all these cannons off, completely unprotected. And uh, then Levasseur shows up, and he gets all this wealth on board. I, I don't remember the exact wow. amount um, that he got, but, you know, there are stories that, you know, he didn't know what to do with all this stuff. And so all these men involved, you know, they came away with so much money. Um, it's believed he might have just had so much. He had to leave it on, on some island east of Africa. Hmm. Um, Seychelles has been the most common searching spot for, for that. Uh, but the idea that each pirate was associated with these legends and doing all this stuff, I, I think a lot of that is fanciful. Yeah. However, there was a lot of wealth going through, a lot of shipwrecks, a lot of failed... Um, I, I guess it's kind of like in the, in the Hendrix Lake scenario, it kind of makes sense of these, these poorly built wagons, you know, not reaching their destination. The last thing they, they think of is 
you know, throwing it in the water. And so how many stories like that are we unaware of? Right. Uh, but the, the idea I think of, you know, these deathbed confessions or these supposed records of, you know, leaving stuff in, in this spot. I think a lot of that is just added by, by pop culture. Yep. I agree. Does the thief have a middleman uh, and, and that in, in regards to Henry Flake that he gave the silver to somebody else to take up and he stayed on the ship, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't remember his name. There's, there's one I, in I, particular. I tried to look it up, but I could not find it. All right. I, there's, there's one in particular near Orange, Texas. Um Actually, actually, near the town of Deweyville, there were known barracks that Lafitte would would transport goods and, and, and slaves to, and they would essentially have these auctions. Um, a, a lot of the time, he would probably have men do that for him, and then stuff would change hands that I know for years. They've been trying to locate the site of some of those auctions, knowing that they will find goods from ships, goods from uh, that could potentially be traced back to Lafitte. Right. Uh, he was known to sell to the Bowie brothers of, uh, you know, Texas history fame. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were, there were plenty of middlemen. He was very well, I guess, invested in the nets of unethical activity in the Southern U.S. And uh, he was really a pirate king. Had men working for him that the word, the... The kind of rules on Campeche, which was his pirate colony in Texas, mm. uh, the, the kind of rules was do whatever you want, uh, but don't turn on me. And so it's like, I, I don't care what you do. A lot of the, the negative stories that get attached to Lafitte were his men's doing. Uh, he, he obviously did not take the, the ships, every single ship that was attributed right. to him. He was this king ruling this, that it, it happened to take over this colony. And all these men were pirating under him, basically. Uh, so he, he kind of gets a lot of uh, credit for that. Perhaps some of that may be undeserved. His brother uh, was also a big part of that. His brother was the mastermind behind a lot of what was going on in terms of um, attacking Spanish ship routes in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps his brother should be one of them, one of the more well-known characters in American history. But, what was his uh, name again? His brother? P um, Pierre. Pierre, yeah. Pierre. Okay. Yep. Wow. Well, see, the thing about Lafayette is he had to tear down and restart up two or three different times. Well, he was quite a businessman also. He knew how to start all over again and make it work. One of the best uh, attributes to him in terms of storytelling was, uh, you know, he was the guy, whoever has the most money is whose side he was on. That's yeah. what happened in, in uh, the uh, Battle of New Orleans. He was approached yes. by the British who wanted them to, wanted him to kind of escort them in. And uh, then I guess the Americans offered more money. <laughs> and uh, he, he kind of rose to wartime fame in, in that battle. Yeah, and I guess, you know, as, the, as they told us on the show, uh, Beyond Oak Island, that the, he had actually been given um, – uh, a pardon, I guess, for him and it, all of his men um, by the president um, 
it was Andrew Jackson. I, mm -hmm. if I remember. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I wasn't sure I was going to throw that out there, but um, he was actually given a pardon for what he had done during that war and the, and the bravery of him and his, and his men uh, to do what they did. And so he was on favor. Then he was in favor or he was on the uh, good side of uh, America at that time, you know, establishing America. And so, but at that time, I think they, that Texas was still, under spanish control was it not it was it was under spanish control until 1821 okay yep. uh, the legend takes place in about 1816 if you take the story to truth and uh it was under mexican control for uh a couple decades after that but it was it was perfect for piracy the, the coast was untouched there was one yeah. tribe uh the Karankawa, which are known for um, the cannibalistic stories and of them being giants on the Texas coast. That was the only other people group that Lafitte really encountered. There were, mm. uh, there was a French settlement and a Spanish settlement in the area, which were kind of failed settlements at the time he took over, but it was perfect for piracy. They could see out into the Gulf and uh, Texas was a good landing spot for him to protect him from the American Navy, which after the pardon, he had men attack American ships. And yep. so they were forced west again. And then the same thing happened at Galveston, if I remember. It was an attack on an American ship that caused yep. him to have to move again. Yeah, the Navy comes after him. He burns everything. <laughs> and uh he leaves and th that's the fun part this is what i've been looking into and uh getting a show treatment together to to pitch a television show on this is what exactly happens to him after uh the the kind of lack of concrete records on this mm -hmm. um has led to a rise in a lot of interesting death theories uh, w with him and his brother um, you know, one in particular is, uh, it just came up recently. There were women writing a book and they supposedly came on this information that he may have under an assumed identity moved to the Eastern coast of the U S and lived out the rest of his life. Right. Uh, there's also the, you know, very controversial journal of Jean Lafitte, which talks about him living the rest of his life as an American under an assumed identity. There are, supposed death records of him in uh, Central America. And, and uh, one in particular, which I tend to agree with, um, but there's also grave sites. Um, you know, it's, it's which one do you follow? Which one is there uh, the, the most information supporting? Wow. Um, one of them, one of the grave sites in Mexico could potentially verify death. Um, with a DNA test. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a woman traveling with, um, she was known to travel with Pierre Lafitte. Her name was Lucia. Um, but it is believed she may have given birth in a, a fishing village in northern Yucatan with Casilán uh, de Bravo. Mm. And this is where uh, Jean Lafitte has a headstone, or not a headstone, but there's a memorial marking really? where the body once was. Right. Wow. Um, well, I came across when I was doing some reading. There is a question of, who was his wife? Because there were two different young ladies or young women that history claims, well, he was married to this one or he was married to that one. 
You know, the one thing that I've never gotten good answers for is uh, is a wife. You know, there were a few people uh, that he has been associated with. One was the daughter of, uh, I believe, a governor in Louisiana. Um, But there were numerous women associated with him. A lot of those have also come from family stories where they claim that, you know, the, the great, great grandmother was associated. So you kind of have to take those with a, um, with a cautious approach. But um, that's, that's one thing I've never been able to solve. Uh, I'm sure someone has looked into that part of his life and a, a lot more thoroughly than I have. Uh, he's not, at least in the, the most prevalent records, not particularly associated with anyone over the other. There was a uh, a couple of questions that we had from some of the uh, members that we we told you know we always put this out saying hey we're going to have Christian Roper on if you have any questions for us uh, for mm-hmm. him let us know, and uh, that was actually kind of led into uh, a couple of the questions I know Janet um, out in our chat here today and also there was another um, let's see uh, Elaine also asked she said uh, Jean Lafitte and uh, his pirates made their home on Galveston are in Galveston, Texas, before he sailed away and disappeared, if that's the story there. Uh, his house was called uh, Mason Rouge? Rouge? Mason Rouge, yeah. Mason Rouge, thank you. And there was supposedly a tunnel there. Have you looked into any of this kind of information about that this tunnel going somewhere and all of that? What have you looked into on that? Yeah. Um, Part of Galveston Island is associated with tunnels. Uh, some of that did come later, particularly during um, uh, what was what was the name of it? The the period in a time in the U.S. when uh, alcohol was illegal. Oh, okay, uh, prohibition. Prohibition, yes. Um, there's a lot of tunnels associated with prohibition. Ah, okay. Um, whether there's any tunnels under my son Rouge. You know who who knows? I know it actually has not been researched that well. Really, it's not been kept up very well. Um, there's a kind of a flimsy fence around the property. Ah, uh, the original Maison Rouge is no longer standing, but understandable. The yeah. the structure was built up upon uh, after Lafitte had left, and it's that structure was eventually destroyed in the hurricane of 1900, and then built again. Wow. So so this property has seen you know three or four houses destroyed on it mm-hmm. there's a cool uh texas state historical marker right in front of the house which will tell you that at one time lafitte's uh, property was outfitted for cannons oh, it was wow. on the, it's, it's on the bay side mm-hmm. and so he had the perfect view of, of anyone attempting to uh you know if, if the american navy ever got close he was kind of ready for that to be his last stand, um, but it's it's been kind of locked off, and a part of the reason was a lot of people in past decades just kept trying to dig holes, you know, assuming that he had had so much he had to bury it five <laughs> feet from his front door. Right? Yeah, exactly. And they've they've never found anything, yeah. but uh, stuff has been found in the area. Various coins, whether it, it belonged to him, you know, who knows? Right. There was just so much activity on the island. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a very cool piece of Texas history that I think I I wish it was kept up with a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, Barbara uh, Barbara Duncan actually she was one of the ones that we're talking about. You you had alluded to this earlier about you know this this mystique that all the pirates went out and buried treasure someplace and they had so much that they were burying it all over. Um, and that's what she was she was asking was there any clear evidence of uh, how pirates actually hid treasure or kept track of those locations where they would have uh, put treasure. But I think you've kind of alluded to that already. Not every one of them. Uh, did have so much that they were burying it in different places. Um, so I think I think we covered that one pretty well, unless you have more to add on that particular subject. Um, there was also, you know, one of the one of the uh, Jeff uh, in, in our chat, and I and I sometimes I glance over and I see some questions, and, I, and folks, I'm sorry because you know we put these up there or put it out that we're having a guest on and put your questions in in advance. But every now and then I'll glance over and see one, and I don't see them all, of course, and that's why we do this. But I'm going to put it up here on the screen. And Jeff asked, you know, he's asking about uh, has any of your research crossed paths with Thomas Jefferson encouraged expeditions for the greater understanding of territory acquired in Louisiana, in the Louisiana territory. Do you, have you looked into any of that kind of stuff yet or know anything about that? Uh, not a lot. I know Lafitte was um, involved in a lot of the earliest mapping in Louisiana and in Northern Texas, all the way up into Arkansas. I know he was involved uh, with a man, a French explorer. I believe his name was Arsene Latour and he was an accused spy. I don't know what the uh, what the I guess correctness of that term would have been. Um, Lafitte at one point had probably been an accused spy, but he was involved in a lot of the mapping of of early Texas and Louisiana rivers. Wow. Um, the the Louisiana territory is very interesting. One of the one of the fun facts that I came across with the uh, Louisiana Territory, particularly uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition, wow. uh, was in a paleontology class in uh, in college. Really, where um, we had found out. So the, the religious view at the time was that uh, God was uh, always uh, kind of watching over creation. Mm -hmm. and that no species could go extinct. And so I believe it was Jefferson that found uh, mammoth bones on his on his property or close to his property. Mm -hmm. And so part of the directive for the Lewis and Clark expedition was to look out west for these uh, mammoth-type creatures. Really? Oh, wow. I didn't and so that was one of the kind of long-lost objectives of that expedition. And there's talk of, of them also being... Uh, kind of directed to look for Welsh land claims. I know they, they came across South Dakota, perhaps, came across a tribe that, that spoke broken Welsh. It was a very interesting story. One of the things I'm most interested in is the people that were here uh, well before Columbus. I don't, I don't think the official story is, is the most right. correct. Right. Um, maybe people were, were doing activities on Oak Island well before Columbus. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff to be found um, yep. in in the U.S. in particular, and in Canada as well. Yeah, but that's something near and dear to our hearts. You know, talking about who's and we've mentioned that before. The whole the the, the official story of Columbus discovering America. Uh, we know that there's been there was different groups of of uh, I'll say foreign you know foreigners coming over and and being here long before Columbus. Um, that was the official record, but 
um, and who they were and, and what were their true intentions or what, what, uh, you know, what's the story behind that? We don't know for a fact yet. We're still working on that, but it's pretty well decided that, uh, you know, they were, not, he was not the first one to come over and discover, you know, the United States, uh, in during that time. Um, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier, you were talking about, and this was something that I think is in your new research talking about, um, your foreign, uh, research into Lafitte. And you, can you can you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah. Um, well, the United States is not the only country with stories of Lafitte. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of question marks about where he was born, even more question marks about where he died. Right. Um, did he perhaps take anything with him when when he died? Was is there anything that could be found? Were there any other pieces that could uh, paint a better picture of his life? Mm -hmm. And I've kind of backed myself into uh, researching Lafitte just by, by looking at the lake. You know, it all started with the lake. To understand the story of the lake, we had to look into Lafitte. And so uh, kind of secondarily, I've gotten a, a lot into that. But I noticed a big uh, kind of gap in information. And I've been in contact with uh, a lot of members of the Lafitte Society. Um, Jim Nonis in particular, I have a wonderful relationship with. And, uh, you know, he's one of those that says there's, there's more to be figured out. There are so many uh, cultural barriers, language barriers that have prevented people in the past from understanding more, I believe, um, perhaps in uh, Cuba and uh, Mexico. There are archives that could paint a better picture of where he was when. Uh, most plausibly, I think he... Uh, took command of a ship called General Santander in uh, Colombia and became a Colombian privateer. Wow. There's a record in a newspaper called La Gaceta de Colombia in 1823, I believe it was February, uh, where there's a man, a captain listed as Capitan Juan Lafitte. Wow. And uh, there's a line right there. It says, Capitan Juan Lafitte murió de sus heridas la segunda día. So the second day after this battle, this captain had, had died of wounds sustained while attacking mm. two Spanish ships. Wow. And the way that he's referenced in this article, um, I think might be the conclusive factor to how he died, but you have to, to take all stories um, and evaluate everyone equally wow. um, because there are other reports that have him potentially dying of illness in Mexico or an illness um, you know, back in, in Hispaniola, which is now Haiti and, and the Dominican Republic. Uh, but I believe that he probably died the way he would have wanted to in uh, meeting his match finally at, at sea. Yeah. I don't, I tend not to believe all these stories of him living a life of piracy and then settling <laughs> for a, a life as this unassuming American. I think when people have attention on them, even if it is for um, illicit activity, I think that's a kind of a drug that um, not yeah. many can escape. Right. I think you're exactly right. And any kind of evidence of that would be his past, the things that we do know, you know, how he, you know, kept returning to this life of piracy Um you know, time and time again after things changed, you know, in his life going along. So yeah, to finally say, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm just going to go live on a farm and, 
and live out my days with my wife and children or whatever type of thing doesn't seem like something that i mean it's not out of the, the realm of possibility but it doesn't seem like it's something that he would do or, a, or somebody that's made it up to the point where he was would do i would think so yeah you're probably right on that with his life on the water and everything else yeah it wouldn't that make sense at all right i'm gonna go live on a farm in, in illinois or something and, and just die there another uh uh, Facebook user here. This, I believe, uh, this was Tom, I believe. And it's just a quick question he had. Uh, has anyone checked into Spanish view of Lafitte? You just were kind of talking about that. Uh, anyone checked into archives uh, in, oh, I didn't know about that little Seville? Seville? I'm not familiar with that place. Is that something that you know anything about there? Or is yeah, that's where most of the uh, Spanish maritime uh, documents could be found. Mm -hmm. However, especially with with spanish documentation a lot of times what will happen is uh you, you try to find information mm -hmm. and uh i i do not i think this one a lot of the the documents have been translated and they are accessible but in especially a lot of central american countries or, or south american countries or caribbean you look for documentation mm -hmm. even in texas of, of spanish colonial records and they will say, okay, we are 1% translated. Um, and by translated, I just mean going through um, archival information. Right. So there, there might be 99% of pages that have not been seen by modern eyes. Mm. Yep. Wow. Uh, that, that was one thing that we encountered in Texas. Um, we were told that we'd be put on a waiting list because there was already some queue of people researching family ties. Mm -hmm. And so to find any record on uh, Spanish skirmishes, you know, we would have to put on a waiting list. We have no clue, you know, how to look for that. A lot of that is just very um, kind of guess work. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, a funny story about that archive in particular was uh, the, the tie that it has to Hendricks Lake, mm -hmm. the, the Santa Rosa, the, the galleon that is mentioned in the story, had no known documentation. There were other ships going by the name of Santa Rosa uh, in in different centuries, but there was nothing in the early 1800s. And oh. so there was one of the searchers, and, and Gary tipped us off to this story, but one of the searchers, he had sent a letter to this archive and they uh, they, they brushed it off. And really? I didn't know why they were they would brush this off until I was at the Texas Treasure Conference and a man walks up and he's got this photocopied chapter of this treasure hunting book. Mm -hmm. And he had photocopied the entire 30-page chapter or whatever and, and tracked me down at this conference and it was, you know, perfectly stapled and he had gone through all this work and it was even highlighted the sections that I needed to read and he drops really? it down in front of me and uh, then you know, he's gone. He says, your ship's in here. Read this. And, and he's gone. And so I'm like, what, what the heck did he, did he just <laughs> give me? Curious drop off of information. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it was written from this uh, man in the American Navy. And he was working in the Spanish archives at the time. Wow. And there was this phenomenon in the 50s and 60s and even going into the 70s of ghost ships. And there were so many TV shows and, and magazines, um, which would talk about these 
Spanish treasure legends and create these ships that did not exist. But to to the, to the people that wanted the information, they would write all these letters to Spain saying, hey, can you give me this information for a ship called uh, Santa Margarita? And it, Spain would say, we don't have that. You know, After a while, they would get hundreds of these letters and, and say, we just that ship does not exist. We have no records. Right. And so it came to the point to where they just stopped replying to all these, you know, American mm -hmm. supposedly, you know, armchair archaeologists looking <laughs> for records. Yeah. And uh, that's what happened in 1965 with one of the searchers of Hendrix Lake. They say the ship doesn't exist. Well, this, this man was very well connected politically and he essentially almost bribes a congressman to urge this Spanish archive to get back to him. And uh, they do. And they, they spend some time searching and they actually find a record in the year that the ship was supposed to exist. And they say, wow. you know, sorry for this delay, but you know, we've actually found the ship. And I'm under the impression that originally they may have thought it to be one of these ghost ships, but they had actually found a record. There's no treasure involved, but they had found a record of the ship, you know, leaving from Havana, Cuba to Spain. And it was implied that from uh, Havana, it may have come from Veracruz and Veracruz was very popular for unloading silver from Mexican silver mines. And so, you know, it, could something happen between Veracruz and Havana? What happened to that shipment? So there's a lot of questions, but the, the records are very incomplete. Lots of them have not been made available untranslated. translated. Uh, you've, if you, you can kind of imagine the pain that maybe an archivist would have if they get a, a request for something and you've just got these huge, you know, two foot tall bound stacks and you've got probably thousands of those in some warehouse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, where do you begin looking for a lot of these records? Exactly. You need a team. One thing, <laughs> yeah, one thing I've also heard, perhaps more beneficial to... Uh, the records in Spain would have been the records kept in London on the insurance on ships. Hmm. And a lot of the ships were insured through, uh, yep. through British insurers. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps you can find records on lost ships through that. Right. Wow. That's, that's really, you know, and, and again, that's gotta be painstaking and especially for someone like you trying to do this research. I mean, do you have the capability of rubbing elbows with somebody in politics to get you through to those channels to find out information about something like that? Um, but that, that's so cool that, you know, that they, they came looking for you or this gentleman came looking for you to share with you some information that he had, um, was able to dig up a little bit and, uh, help you with your search. And that's, that that not that I mean it seems so you know so uh, by chance but yet he knew that this was an area that you were working um, and and again this is because of I think that you know we know because we've seen you on the show we know that you're you know working on this and you're working on your document documentary that um, we know that you're interested in in this stuff and that you're really digging hard on it so apparently he did too. And he was trying to help you out with this research. Um, tell us a little bit about that. You know, you're, you, uh, we've been out to your, and I, folks, I wanted to tell you about his website. If you have not seen it already, I haven't been there already. It's uh, sunkensilver.com. And I think we can have a link for that put up if you, it's pretty simple, sunkensilver.com. Um, and, and also there was a, um, I believe there's also a, um, an article in the Longview newspaper, uh, I guess online, that also talks about 
uh, what you're working on. And I believe we've got some links for that as well for people who want to check that out. Um, so tell us a little bit about now you're working on a documentary. And I know we've probably alluded to much of it already as we've been talking here. But where where are you? Uh, where, where do things sit with this documentary so far? And are there things in this that we haven't talked about so far? Uh, yeah, there might be a few. Um, so the timeline was I, I kind of talked about the genesis of it, of being told this story as a kid. And then there was some itch to re-explore. Mm -hmm. And uh, revisiting uh, the, the story and hearing some of the, the craziness that, that happened with some of the searches was what right. convinced me to uh, make this documentary. And, you know, I was, I had a, a background in, in doing a little bit of film work and uh, it, it was just local, something I could look into. I never expected to, you know, have Oak Island come calling or meet Laginas through that. I was just tracking down a story that I thought was very interesting. Right. Um, so the idea of having it in front of 2 million people or whatever, insane to me. I, I did not expect that to happen. Yep. But we started tracking down a lot of the original searchers and it, it goes very well beyond kind of what gets shown on TV. The, the TV is very linear in terms of what they do with, with treasure shows. And I don't want people to to think of this in the same wavelength as as an Oak Island or as any other investigative show, mm -hmm. where um, you know here's the story, let's go look, is it real or not? Which always ends with a, a cliffhanger. Yeah, and then exactly. and then there it is. Um, this one in particular dives a lot into the. How and why did this story evolve over time? How did they begin? Um, if it wasn't an exact history, then how did various people get added to it? Um, I can kind of tease a little bit and say, we've been able to prove a, a couple different parts of this story, mm -hmm. and we've been able to disprove quite a few parts of the story, while at the same time showing exactly how this action or this person gets added to the story. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's a really cool, maybe for the first time ever, you get to see how a treasure story um, just evolves over time. You get to see how folklore connects people and how it, it will kind of ebb and flow mm -hmm. with, with different cultural factors. You know, if, if pirates are in, then that's who you want to be associated with your story. However, if, if there's some, uh, you know, it's Texas, you know, you kind of choose between pirates, you know, outlaws, uh, you know, you've got Spanish explorations, mm -hmm. choose who you want to be at the center of your treasure story. Yeah. And it, it'll almost make sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sure. you get to see a lot of that. It dives into the paranormal just a little bit because Lafitte, anyone who's heard of Lafitte has heard the ghost stories. You've, you've heard, um, no, I haven't. I mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. Please elaborate because <laughs> I have not heard those. Well, there's this idea, you know, treasure hunters always refuse to admit that there might be nothing there when they're searching. Mm -hmm. There's always some reason they aren't finding it. Sometimes right. it might be physical. You know, sometimes it's we're not digging deep enough or we're not digging in the right location. Other times 
which has been shown in the case of Hendrix Lake is people will talk about um, the idea of curses. You know, you've got that on Oak Island. Is, is it something paranormal keeping people away? You've got stories, countless stories in East Texas of people saying, you know, it, it's not there, it's, it's here. And, you know, people 100 years ago would talk about the ghost of Lafitte guarding this thing. And so there's, there's kind of a paranormal tinge to everything um, that touches Lafitte. Um, and, and so we dive into that a little bit. Um, it's kind of why that gets attached to stories. There's an extra layer that makes a good treasure story. Yep. Um, we dive into that a little bit. And then the film makes some pretty good conclusions, um, some pretty major conclusions that uh, completely change the story. Um, I mentioned we found quite a few artifacts while diving the lake. Yeah. And uh, some of those were still waiting on exact um, identification. Other those, we can identify it to the point to where we can rule various factors out. Um, so I think we can say pretty uh, soon that, uh, yeah, so that's that's a musket ball that we found. Mm -hmm. um, Steve found that. And uh, all this has been f within, uh, you know, 30 to 40 feet. And there's a kind of huge circle that we search at the bottom of the lake. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way you find stuff is you take a detector down there. And it was the SAR-1 detector that we moved, that we used most prominently, mm -hmm. uh, particularly because you can't see light and you can't really uh, tell much from sound. Right. So it, it relies on vibration. Uh, and half the time you can only tell, we typically dive with, with two people. We've, we've got a partner. We might not be right next to each other, but you can always dive with a partner and we're always communicating in case something goes wrong. Right. Um, but the star one was just going off constantly. And so I always knew where the other diver was, even though it was pitch black, just mm -hmm. by hearing this vibration. Right. And this was uh, my favorite piece that I found. And what that resembles, I don't have a picture of, of an old wooden cart, but uh, it's very similar to, we have gotten identified as being from some sort of wooden cart, uh, well over a hundred years old. Wow. Um, and it is iron. It is, it has begun to start uh, flaking. Now that's that's after it was still wet. Now it started to flake, mm -hmm. but it was a it was a two flat pieces of iron and a big bolt that went through that secured it to the front of a uh, wooden beam on the front of a cart, right. um, which is close to a wagon tongue. Mm -hmm. And so we've been reaching out to a bunch of foremen that that reconstruct old wagons, uh, you know, battlefield archaeologists to try to get some of this identified. Right, and uh, we have gotten a, a bit of it identified and I, I told you earlier when we were diving it's like every three minutes a diver would come up and the piece that they would have would be you know a decade older than right the, than the last piece mm -hmm. and so we're slowly going further and further back and uh it, you know it, it's just even if you are skeptical and a lot of people have been on finding anything at the lake when you start pulling up old pieces like that, there's always a maybe. Right. Um, even though I've been able to 
you know, kind of without a doubt in my mind, find connections in the story that say this is exactly what happened and this is how the story grew to what it is today. Mm-hmm. You still find pieces on occasion and you're like, okay, what what if? Um, but it's to really nasty dive. You're, you're fighting fish and snakes. <laughs> I remember last time we were diving, I was, I was still down there digging and uh, everyone else was on the boat. And uh, I think it was probably, it was probably a moccasin. They never identified it, but it, it might've been a water snake. It, it surfaced exactly where I was and I was still down there digging and it swam right over. And uh, everyone just assumed I saw it. And it wasn't until I got back to shore, people were like, oh, you know, did you see that snake you were down there with? I said, no, oh, no. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, this thing begs, you know, I'm looking at this thing and it, and it, and I, it begs the question, okay, so it's a couple hundred or a hundred years old or so. Well, what in the heck is it doing in a lake? I mean, what's it doing in the lake? Why would it be there? Um, I mean, generally, you're not going to have, you know, unless like as the story was being told to us on the show that, you know, they, they, they were coming along on the, and I say the name of the, the trail. It was called uh, the Trace. Trammel's uh, Trace. Yeah. Trammel's Trace. And they, they decide, oh, we don't want this to get, we don't want to get caught with this. We don't want it to be found. So they, they push the cart into the, into the lake and sunk it. I mean, okay, if that, if that story is true, then, I mean, you go back. Otherwise, why would this be in the lake? Why would that, that hunk of steel be in the lake? I mean, somebody's not going to just say, hey, I've got this old cart. Let me just push it in the lake and have it deteriorate. And, you know, this piece of hunk of, this hunk of metal is going to be found or whatever. You know, you just don't, that just doesn't make good sense. Um, why else would it be there unless somebody purposely put it there for a reason of maybe hiding what was on it? I don't know. I mean, it just begs that question, you know, why would it, why would it be there in the first place? And then of course there was this piece that you sent across as well. And that's a, that's, that's a hefty hunk of, uh, iron right there. Uh, that's, that looks like it has to weigh, you know, minimum 10 pounds or more. Uh, have you figured out what this thing is? (laughs) Our best guess is, is that's some sort of equipment that might have been used in perhaps transporting logs. The only other activity that was at the lake, um, other than the supposed story, uh, was some logging activity that had been done when people first started to move to this area of Texas. Uh-huh, that was okay. about the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Okay. And there's a spot for a pin in the front, and we've we've just never been able to identify exactly what this is we just know it's it's really old but it's one of those cool pieces anytime you pull something up that's 100 years or so old maybe even older you just kind of feel cool about it that's yeah exactly (laughs) that's a story that that's been forgotten about for 100 years right the the piece that i found um was on accident i didn't have a detector um i was actually trying to so you, you get on your your hands and knees typically, but there are times where you have to be on your stomach uh, so you can reach your entire arm in. And there's two to three feet of kind of very soft mud. And beneath that, you have this light gray clay. And uh, when you come up, if if it's cold and you're wearing a black wetsuit, you'll come up and you'll just be covered in this light gray clay you'll be an entire entirely different color mm-hmm. 
uh, but you just dig. So you, if you get a hit, you, you dig out the mud and then you stick the detector in. If it's even lower, then you dig a deeper hole, you get into that hole and then you dig a hole inside of that hole. Stick your arm in if you don't feel anything, you know, just keep trying. And so you're just down there digging, it's black. There have been times where I've kind of spaced out while I'm down there, it's so dark. Mm -hmm. I, like I wake up and I'm like, am I asleep? And then I realize I'm at the bottom of this lake and I'm digging. Uh, that's when the reality set in it was my first time going down and it was, I couldn't tell if my mask was in the mud or if I was looking <laughs> straight out. It was that dark. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh. But this, this piece was found on accident and I was pushing to make myself upright from being on my stomach. And my, it was, the mud was so soft that the force of the push pushed my right arm down to about the bicep and the hand went right on top of that piece of uh, metal, whatever it was. And so if, if that's the decisive piece of, you know, saying exactly what it is, um, if it is a wagon, then even proving that there is some type of wagon, even if it's not from the right era and right. a lot of the stuff is later attached to it, uh, th that's pretty cool to definitively say that there was a wagon in the lake. Yep. Um, it's kind of one of those things where you find a piece, perhaps, you know, something could have been found in the past, other wagon pieces, and they needed a, a good explanation for why that ended up in the lake. Right. And hiding treasure is kind of a, a logical explanation for that. Yep. So we've, we found all kinds of stuff, and now it's the point where you work backward and you, you put the story together. I don't know how archaeologists can find the tiniest slivers of, of wood and, and uh, metal and, and place an entire kind of cultural history on right. that find. Uh, a lot of talented people involved in Oak Island uh, kind of helping Rick and Marty with that as well. Yep, exactly. What depth were you at? Christian on most of those finds? Uh, the majority of the time, I think my dive computer was reading about three meters, maybe about 13, 13 to 15 feet. Wow. Yeah. Majority of the time. So you're, you're shallow. Um, but when you look up, the way you can tell directions is there's a side that's going to be dark green and there's a side that's going to be black. And the side that's dark green is where the sun is. <laughs> so you can always orient yourself. Uh, just by looking up and seeing which side is a little bit more light. Wow. And, I, and I, we talked a little bit on the pre-show there about how I've, I've dove before, uh, not many times, but uh, it, it, but never in conditions like that. And I and I wouldn't, first of all, because I'm not qualified for that. But I just, that's got to be it. And folks, I got to show you this. Uh, Christian shared this little short little, just a few second video with us. Uh, send it over to me. And I'm going to share this with you because if, it, if you get the... Uh, uh, you know, talking about the creatures and stuff that would be in a lake. Um, I, I'm just going to pop this up and show you real quick. This is one that he sent to us. And then after it's done, because you can't hear us when it's going, but when it's done, then I'll have him elaborate on it a little bit. So watch this real quick, just a few seconds long. Okay, so, <laughs> so that was looked like a large turtle. Is that is that what that was? 
Yeah, that's uh, one of the more common things that you will see out there is these huge alligator snapping turtles. Um, they're turtles in the lake well over 100 pounds. And so they get spooked if you're in the water, but it's still a good idea when you're searching to uh, kind of close your fists and kind of oh, okay. and feel around. Oh, yeah, I, I can take a finger off real quick. I mean. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh yeah, that's 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 the you know that's the kind of the critters that are they're dealing with in these in these lakes and stuff. Yeah, a big snapper. Barb said a snapper. Yeah, you're right. Um, and and it, what made me think about this is that Christian's talking about you know sticking his arm down in this muck and reaching for things. You know, oh yeah, I'm just yeah I'm on my belly and all my feet are behind me floating in the water and I'm sticking my arms down in here and finding things and I'm like no. No, 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 no. As much as I would love to be helping uh, with something like that, um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. That just, uh, I mean, that thing could take off, crunch through bone, I, I would imagine, pretty easily, would it not? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, they, they typically <laughs> just kind of rest on the bottom, and they'll mm. have their mouth open, and they've got a good kind of range of motion where they can get the mouth up. So uh, not, not fun to be around. They can be pretty quick swimmers if they're trying to get away. Right. Um, but, I mean, it's it's nothing to be worried about if, if you kind of make a lot of noise and you're very kind of uh, annoying with your movements. You can, you can scare stuff out pretty easily. <laughs> we yeah. did see one uh, last year, I think in October. It was missing a big chunk out of the, uh, the shell and the, the back leg. Mm -hmm. And so... Our first thought was that it may have had a run-in with an alligator. Wow. We've never seen an alligator at the lake, um, but it's always one of those things that's in the back of your mind. Mm. I know there were three or four straight dives where, as we take that, you know, you're going two miles an hour in, in this little boat. It takes a while to get out, and so you just slowly pass the stuff. And so when you come around that first bend, you've got a turtle. And mm -hmm. then you've got 10 minutes to think about the size of that turtle until you reach the dive site. And so that's always in the back of your mind. Uh, but when you, when you go down there, you kind of forget about everything. Okay. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> I'll take your word for that. All right. Um, okay. So now that, uh, you know, I, I'm sitting here, you know, thinking about losing a finger or something. Um, we had another picture here real quick and I want to show where we're getting about, we got about, uh, we're about an hour and a half in. So, and I like to try to keep these things to two hours. So um, just to kind of get an idea there, there's a picture here of, uh, and I believe you told me this was uh, Tatum, I guess was his name. Was that? Yeah, that's okay. uh, Paul Tatum. He was the very first documented searcher of anything in, in Hendricks Lake. Okay. And so, uh, that was him as a child. And so it all started with him in the late 1800s of this idea of, of something being in the lake. Mm -hmm. And uh, it all started with him in this kind of childhood obsession. And uh, that somehow snowballed 140 years later to uh, being referenced on TV. I, yeah. I thought that was kind of cool to show the, the beginnings of that. Yeah, that is. It really is. And there was there was some interesting stories about him as well, right? About uh, um, I, I, I do, we were kind of talking about it on the pre-show. Oh. We, we were referring to it a little bit about he he actually killed somebody, did he not? Or uh, as he got older, he he did. There there were um, 
family stories about him kind of being very adventurous and determined. And one of those was trying to walk on water with, with buckets <laughs> and jumping off of the, the roof of his house with umbrellas. Um, neither of those ended particularly well. Yeah. But in, in the 1880s, he tried to search for the treasure. He was so convinced that he got a team of guys together to uh, try to drain the lake. And it's spring-fed, so you can imagine how that went. Mm, yeah. And you've got a conveyor system that kind of dragged a bucket along at a time. <laughs> so you've got a lake of that size and a single bucket at a time. It's going to take some time to, to lower the water. He was kind of made fun of by a, a newspaper at the time in Galveston. Mm. And uh, I think uh, Gary's kind of theory was that there was an, another neighbor that had poked some f fun at him, piggybacking mm. off of that newspaper article. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gary did an incredible job kind of digging a lot of that stuff up. Uh, but they got into an argument that involved clubs and uh, the neighbor ended up being clubbed to death. Mm. So that was that was the start of the the story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a, a little article there. Uh, Paul Tatum and William Downs, neighbors near Easton, got into a quarrel over draining of Hendricks Lake, Hendricks Lake, uh, in which clubs uh, it is said were freely used. I like that terminology. Freely used clubs were freely used. Uh, Tatum struck down, uh, struck downs uh, so severely that uh, he ended up dying the next morning. Um, but then he, then he, you know, as as Jack was talking about earlier, he went on to become the postmaster or something like that. Tatum did, I guess, or something. But um, interesting that that's how, whoops, interesting that's how that all started. You know, it kind of started with him. You know, I I was unaware of that until, of course, you brought that up, and that's that is pretty cool. Um, now, one thing too, we're we're getting close. I want to do wrap some things up, but you had you had alluded to uh, some uh, paranormal stuff, and I know this, uh, you know, beyond Oak Island and all that's not really about paranormal things, but there are some definite paranormal happenings on Oak Island that we've you know talked about, and the show has talked about, um, and you kind of alluded to that as well. Um, and we talked about the ghosts and stuff like that, the ghost of pirates and the ghost. There's been ghost ships. And I know that some of our members, I think Brenda even mentioned that she's actually seen one. I've never seen a ghost ship. Um, but I do like to do a lot of investigations when it comes to paranormal activity. Um, do you have other stories that you could share? Have you had experiences with this, with paranormal yourself? <laughs> Big sigh there. Oh, boy. I know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever would have ended up on television if I didn't. Really, um, I'm working on a book right now, kind of of some life stories and how different things connected. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been able to see some cool things. I don't, I don't think I've had the most incredible life experiences ever, but I've, there have been a few very strange things that have happened. One of those was. Uh, some some childhood experiences that later got me into cameras and mm -hmm. some some people I knew as a kid and then that happens another thing happens and then this happens and then all of a sudden I end up looking into this story about pirate treasure on TV. Um, it was just this very strange kind of a snowball. Mm -hmm. um, but my my family does have a lot of connections to uh, strange events. I think. One I really like to talk about was 
um, again, fans of Prometheus, if, if you watch Ancient Aliens, you've, you've heard about Operation High Jump, mm -hmm. yep. the uh, yep. 1946 expedition to Antarctica. Yep. My uh, grandfather was the chief um, expedition medic aboard the uh, flagship, the uh, USCGC Northwind of that expedition. Mm -hmm. That's the one associated wow. with all the uh, you right. know, hidden bases. And there was a, a Chilean newspaper that I believe personally that they misquoted some of uh, Admiral Byrd's words. Really? But, uh, or they didn't misquote. I believe it was misinterpreted later by um, the U.S. On, on what Admiral Byrd was saying. Mm -hmm. But there's all this UFO lore attached to that. Um, so it, it kind of starts with that. That's a cool family tie. I, I did bring that up with uh, Rick and Marty. And then Rick yep. says, oh, did you know Admiral Byrd? had a huge interest in Oak Island. And I said, I, I had no clue. I didn't know why or for what reasons. He was maybe the last great explorer. If you count him after Percy Fawcett, he was the right. one that was looking into uh, the last untouched places on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I did have two very strange face-to-face, uh, -face, I would say, encounters with... What I later find out is some people refer to as ghosts. I, I didn't know that as a kid. I didn't know what that was. Um, I can give a brief synopsis of one. But, Please. Uh, one, one was, yeah. yeah, when I was, I was about four years old. Um, I had no clue what, I, I, I kind of grew up in an area where uh, the paranormal was really taboo. And uh, was in an aunt's home and I was about four years old. Uh aunt uncle mom dad and i believe myself that may have been it in the living room uh i don't know if i had to go to the restroom whatever at some point i venture off into a hallway and i, I pass a room which i would later find out was the bathroom and it was enclosed over well the house was sold that was built before indoor plumbing and so there was this enclosed well in this newly built bathroom. You had to add that onto the house. And I remember being called into the room by a man. Didn't, didn't think anything of him. I remember describing him to my parents. He had red hair, red nose. Um, but something was off about him with, with the, the color. And so I would, uh, I, I'll get to this point where I describe him, but I would not describe him as a normal man. Uh, and I remember telling later that he uh, knelt down and touched my shoulder, and I do not remember what he said to me. I wish I could do some sort of, you know, memory regression yeah, and, yeah. and get this story out there. But um, maybe, maybe that'll happen one day. But I don't remember what he said, and it's always bothered me. Uh, but I'm, I'm standing in the doorway, and my aunt sees me. And I'm in there talking, and there's no one else in the house. It was just everyone in the living room and me, and I'm talking to someone. And uh, she kind of, she was the owner of the house, and she said, who are you talking to? And I turned to her, and I say, the, the clown wants to talk to you. <laughs> and I described him as a clown because he had this very discolored red nose and this mm -hmm. unkept red hair. Um, and at four years old, I just thought he was a clown. It was something right. weird about him. Uh, didn't think anything weird about that. 
at the time. Everyone freaks out in the house. They check the house. They're worried that someone snuck in. No one else right. is in there. Right. Um, a few weeks later, it happens again. My aunt was babysitting me. I was going up to the attic, and I said, the, the clown, he's leading me up there. Uh, still didn't know what was going on. Half of the family was like, "There's you, you, like he's making it up, whatever. Right. Uh, they just didn't want to believe. And then a few weeks after that, uh, I guess there were some photos left in the house from when they had moved in. I remember they had moved in uh, pretty soon uh, before that, that happened. They weren't in very long. Mm. And uh, I had pointed this picture out as a group of men, and I pointed out this one man, and I said, that's the clown. And it was the man that had passed away in the house before they, they got it. Oh, wow. Oh. And so that's like the, the, the big ghost story in my family. I had another uh, with, with my sister where we had both um, seen our grandfather in a car a few months after he had passed away. I was around the same age. And so never knew that what that was until I kind of got older and I was in high school. And you kind of get this rise of, of ghost shows and paranormal shows and my mother and I were huge fans of uh, the original um, Ghost Hunters. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Taps and those guys. And so I remember, you know, pretending to be sick so I could stay home from school and watch all these ghost shows with my mom. That was, yep. you know, when they had marathons, that was my favorite thing to oh, do, yeah. was, you yep. know, be sick. Mm-hmm. Um, <sighs> that, uh, that happened when I was very young. Didn't know a thing about it. And then later on, it's it's always retold in the family. I wish I had a better memory of it. I've right. had a few other strange things happen. I've been involved um, in a few different paranormal groups. Uh, but the, I had a childhood which exposed me to a lot of things. Yeah. I think East Texas is a breeding ground for a lot of strange stuff. Um, maybe most specifically the, the weirdest stuff as a child um was the amount of i guess family friends we had with uh sasquatch stories in east texas mm-hmm. um my dad's best man in his wedding i think my dad was the best man in his wedding um later founded the gulf coast bigfoot research organization uh i would say we've had 15 to 20 family friends with really personal sightings Wow. Uh, my mom grew up in a very rural town. All of her high school friends, you know, a lot of them had like roadside sightings. Uh, that was something I grew up with that never had a huge, huge interest in it. I was always mm-hmm. obsessed with, you know, sea monsters. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you see the Patterson Gimlin film on TV, you're like, okay, that's, you know, it's, it's just a big gorilla or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yep. I was 12 and, uh, when a family friend had heard that I was very interested in, in anything weird, I loved cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. I was the big cryptozoology nerd. In fact, in, in middle school, I like made this uh, publication that I made on Microsoft Publisher that was like five pages. And I would print one out like every week and just Google a bunch of Bigfoot sightings and, and sea monster sightings and like uh, paraphrase those and put them in my own publication. And like three people, three of the guys at school thought that was the coolest thing. And so I would like yep. hand these out. We would go through all these UFO sightings and, and supposed photos of Bigfoot, but they loved it. Um, That's awesome. And uh, one of my mother's coworkers, she was like, uh, do, have you, do you ever want to see pictures of these things? 
and uh, we were taken by her in the summer of 2008 into a field that bordered the ID Fairchild State Forest in Maydell, Texas. Okay. And uh, she took us what she called spotlighting for, we, we call it in Texas, we call them skunk apes. That's what they're always called in Texas. Skunk apes or, or wood boogers a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she took a spotlighting for these these things. And I remember being uh, kind of, you know, you, you don't really understand what's going on at 12 with, right. with that stuff. You know, I was expecting this big gorilla type thing to come out of the woods and, and shake my hand. <laughs> Sadly, that never happened. But I right. remember she was, she took us out in the back of this truck. And I mean, if you guys have ever been to Texas, you know, kind of the woman that I'm describing. She had more guns and machetes in the back of this truck than I think I've ever seen in my life. That's and hilarious. so at 12, I was like, where are we going? all these weapons in the back of this truck oh man she had this this huge uh this spotlight and uh then uh she would she would point one out every few minutes and she would say there's one and i said i I don't i don't see anything i remember seeing um i shine way way up in the tree and i you know i thought it was raccoons never thought anything about it later 10 years after my mom would say something stood up in the in the hayfield and when she turned her eyes and she never said anything about it. Um, but she did that. After that, she handed me these CDs of photos that she had taken. Really? And she had um, pretty detailed photos of, of faces of something uh, kind of hidden behind uh, sort of, I, I guess, bushes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's I've I've talked about this on a, on a few different podcasts before. I've always been open talking about that, mm-hmm. but I was like 12 years old going through these photos of something that this lady had taken. It always kind of weirded me out. Um, it had convinced me so much that something was out there that I thought I was going to study primatology when I went to university because I said, you know, it's 10 years away from graduating. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time I'm out maybe these things will be proven to exist and I'll be on the forefront of the scientists kind of researching them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another strange thing that happened. Um, I can talk about, uh, I've got a couple, I guess, UFO sightings I could talk about. Sure. One thing I wanted to say too, real quick on this before you do that, um, was that, you know, you met Maddie Blake obviously, and I had Maddie Blake on the show. Um, and Maddie and, you know, Maddie and I kind of talked off air a little bit about, you know, um, UAPs and paranormal stuff because he's into that as well. And uh, so, you know, I, I would imagine I don't know if you guys got the opportunity to discuss anything like that, but I, I've talked to him. Uh, John Edwards and I. Oh, uh, this might be him calling in. Let me check and see because John was going to call in. Let me see if this is him. Hello. Hey, it's John Edwards. Hey, John. How you hey, doing? John. No, I just wanted to get in on the conversation. He just said UFOs, and I'm all ears. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to listen in the background, if you don't mind, Jeff. Oh, okay, no problem. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's uh, John and I are uh, working on a new uh, uh, a little project. We're going to give it a, a trial run and see how it goes. But it's it's called. Uh, I think we've come up with a we've come up with the name of it. Uh, it's uh, Beyond Our World. 
mm-hmm. it's not only going to talk about UFOs and uh, UAPs and stuff like that, but also talk about paranormal stuff uh, as well. And, and and we're hoping to get Maddie on because Maddie's kind of into this. And now knowing that you have some experiences, Absolutely. you know, we're going to have to get you on here as well, uh, Christian, at some point when we get this thing rolling. Um, and have you talk about it uh, as well. So I wanted to ask, go ahead, talk about the uh, UAP stuff real quick. we got a few more minutes. We can cover it real fast here. Cool. Um, Talking about the UAPs, I mean, I'm fascinated what you saw, what was, you know, what you documented, things that, that, that the phenomena itself, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. So the first thing I I think that's weird that I've seen um, growing up, my family dubbed the road to my house, UFO road because we would occasionally see weird things always while driving on this road and they would always be on the left side. And I believe it was 2016. Um, Again, you you see something like this, you have no explanation for it. And then all of a sudden, five, 10 years later, someone will associate it with the UFO phenomenon. And you say, well, is that what I saw? I I think Mm -hmm. some of the most compelling stories when I listen to people's experiences may be, when they see something and they don't have the framework in their mind to immediately categorize that until, until later. Mm-hmm. And so driving down, down this road, um, one of the strange things we saw was it was maybe five o'clock daylight, daylight. And there was a, a long, a long way in the distance. There's a single light. And then from that, as we're watching the light, nothing was weird about it. I, you know, you kind of watch a light and you assume it's an airplane Right. from that four kind of equidistant lights come from that. And it was very far off in the distance. They were pink. And my immediate thought, um, because I believe in the news prior to that, was that there was a there were two planes that collided. Um, I don't know if that was – I know it was in the U.S. I don't remember if it was Texas, but I remember hmm. it was like 2016. There were two planes that collided, and all this debris came from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also someone that – uh, despite being very young, I was around when the uh, the space shuttle disaster happened over uh, right. Texas and Louisiana, and being mm-hmm. able to watch that and seeing uh, stuff come from that. Right. All that uh, off, right. There, there was from this. There were streaks coming from it, and my immediate thought was that planes had collided, mm. and so I, I checked. Everything I checked uh, news could not find anything about planes colliding. We just watched in the distance of this one light split into four, and it very well could have been flares or whatever. Um, but it, it was unidentified at the time. That's that's what we uh, kind of watched for a few minutes. Another, maybe the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life, and I've never really talked about it with anyone. Simply not out of uh, kind of. Some things are, are so weird. You don't not only want to talk about them out of being yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of criticized, but you don't know how to describe it. Like, right? Oh, I see. How, how am I going to find the words for for this? It was someone can find the exact date for this, but I know it was August of 2017, and I was in Bellmead, Tennessee, uh, with a friend because I was traveling to Nashville to photograph the uh, the total eclipse which was, it was cutting right across Nashville. It was that morning and I was showering in the second story bathroom of a friend's house. And through this window, this light catches my eye. And 
Didn't know what it was. Uh, it's probably, you know, it was a, in between this house and the house across the street. Uh, wouldn't even have a guess for a distance of that, maybe 80, 100 feet, mm -hmm. perhaps more. And I just assumed that I was seeing this very reflective bugs have a very waxy coat. And, and you know, if they're in the sun, you can get some interesting sun reflections off of this. Reflections, yeah. Uh, so I, I thought I was watching this bug. Um, and then I noticed that bugs, you know, they're very erratic in the way they move. Mm -hmm. But out of the corner of my eye, I just assumed it was a bug going by because it was bright. And then I, I took a closer look at it, and I watched it for about three to four seconds. And it was a the, – the first thing I would have dis, used to describe this is a pinball. You know how pinballs, they are metallic mm -hmm. and uh, very metallic, and there's usually a bright point on it. Right. It was like a very metallic orb. Um and then my first thought is, okay, this is a balloon. This is a gray balloon. It was moving in almost like a sine wave fashion up and down, heading into a direction. I thought that was I thought that was strange. It was sine wave up and down. And then I couldn't tell how far away it was. At first I thought it was in the sky until I realized it was in between me and the other house because oh, as wow. it is as it is wow. going like this up and down, there is the corner of a roof. There is a uh, two-story building on the other side. So this thing was maybe 20 feet up in the air. And the, the corner of the roof is right here. As it is coming across, it goes up above the roof. And it, it, it potentially could have been explained um, if you're, you're talking about wind drafts and going above the roof, whatever. But for three to four seconds, I watched this metallic ball in this neighborhood. No one else saw it um, that I know of. I you know, didn't even bring it up the, the rest of the day because I didn't know what I saw. It goes up, down, up, down, and then up over the corner of the roof. And there was a chimney right here. And then it turns a little bit and it goes into the top of the tree line. And that was all I saw of it. Never really talked about that to anyone since. Uh, did not even know. I've, you know, I've talked to like two people and they're like, oh, you saw ball lightning. Scientists have been trying to catch ball lightning for years where they know it forms. I, mm -hmm. It was perfect weather in, in Bellmead, Tennessee during the day. Right. Um, and why would it have was like that up over right. the ridge of that house? Exactly. Right. I mean, if it was ball it, lightning, well, I don't think it would have made that kind of move. Wow. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, you see it, you don't immediately categorize it. You're like, huh, that, either that was a very misleading balloon without a string, perfectly round. You know, I can recognize a drone from a hundred feet away. That's one of the, the, a lot of the, the armchair skeptics will immediately come up with a conclusion mm -hmm. of, of what they think it is. I'm someone that, you know, I always rely on science. If there is a way to disprove something, then let's disprove it. I will never see something and immediately tell you um, exactly what I saw. You know, I'm, I'm always open to, to finding out more. Humans are not perfect in the way we perceive. Right, right. Um, but now that I know that other people have seen similar stuff, seen, um, or it was almost like self-illuminated. It was very metallic, but almost like illuminated on the inside. Saw it from a distance away. Saw it was in between houses. Uh, I know right now that 
even though I'm not, I have experience flying drones, I could not fly it at that speed like that. Yeah. Uh, was not, it seemed intelligent, but it was not, you know, exhibiting anything beyond, you know, our, our known physics. Right. And that's, that's the thing now with UAPs. Right. Exactly. It, it is, it is kind of annoying, uh, how the, the framework for how we talk about, uh, mm. UAPs has changed in the last few years, and this would be interested, interesting to, to cover on the show. Yep. Um, how it's gone from a civilian phenomena in, in the last 50 years or 70 years since, if, if you guys are starting at 1947, then right. uh, 70 years or so, uh, to now it's like, well, let, let's hold off on talking about these stories. Let's keep it to what the military is seeing. I, I feel like there's a... Uh, framework change going on now to where it's it's now talked about where it's 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 okay to talk about it a little bit but only if it's you know what credible military pilots have seen or right or under right. this certain situation yeah but it's it'll be really interesting to see to see how much is conceded by government entities or military mm-hmm. and say hey do we need to revisit roswell do we need to revisit you know, Aurora, the, the cash lange of incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, did these people really see something? Were we too quick to discredit? Right. Brandish them for it. Yep. I, I am very intrigued by the phenomenon. I think there's too much attention is given to the U.S. with it. A lot of the, the reports that I like taking are from Central and South America, specifically Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state of Querétaro, there's plenty of sightings and lots of strange uh, radar um, instances, uh, a lot of weird stuff. I think South America is a a big key to figuring out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, I, I, I told someone the other day, it's like, uh, you know, I've always kind of been sad in life. There's always that that saying that, you know, you were born too late to explore the earth (laughs) and then too early to explore space. But how cool would it be to be in the generation to where you find out potentially we aren't alone. Let's say that's what the answer is, is that some entity is out there. And we're not alone. Like the, yep. the, hey, hey, Jeff, John, that real quick. Um, it, and I agree with Christian. It, it's almost like there's a rebranding of the UFO phenomena going on. Yep. And so UFO sounds more fringe and suddenly we have UAP. Right. And suddenly the government's leaking things purposefully, I think. And there's more of an acceptance of it. And I really think that they're kind of priming the, public for possible disclosure yep um i don't think it's going to be anything quick um but i, I think that's what's going on now yep. um I, I did have one question for christian and then i'll, I'll log off okay um when the movement christian of the objects was it was it jerky was it smooth i mean was it something that that is otherworldly i mean how would how did these objects move how smooth was the was the movement uh what i saw I wouldn't describe it as otherworldly at all. It was very well within normal movement, just like a like a, a sine wave, smooth up and down, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it was it was always up and down fashion, and then but it was intelligent to where it did not hit the either it, it hit some sort of uh, you know I, I know air can lift something over the corner right exactly whatever. airflow would I be don't know how if it was a if yep, it was yep. a balloon how it did not bump. Mm-hmm. or it went perfectly into the tree line. Um, 
it was very strange if if you've ever just you know a ship in in coming ways up and down just, wow that's a know, good way to describe that yeah but, but it was it was moving up and down as it was kind of going directionally mm-hmm. across this suburb it was it was not in the middle of nowhere so many ufo sightings happened in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. i was in a bathroom looking out through a window for three to four seconds and it was I mean, developed neighborhood, kind of in the woods, but that was the we- one of the weirdest things I've seen in my life. I uh, wouldn't even know how to, I mean, I just don't think about it because the more I think about it, the more I'm kind of annoyed that I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I know Everything that else, very well. Yeah, every, it's, it's, you know, ghosts, you can have, you can see something and say, okay, I know what that is. You know, I've got these religious beliefs and I can categorize this. Mm-hmm. Sasquatch, you know, you can say, you know, there's another animal UFOs and UAPs, you know, how do you even have a guess for what some of this stuff is? Right. If, if you do have a guess, then what information could you possibly be going off of? Exactly. It's, it's one of those things that I think will always bother me. Just having that phenomenon, always having the interest. I, at times, you know, you kind of wish you were born without the curious mind where you could see the headlines and go, oh, that's interesting and move on. But none I of us be that guy. I could not be that guy. That's why we're, we're right. talking about this on a, on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I could not be that guy. I, I have that curious mind and I want to know. And, you know, and, and sometimes people say, well, that's going to clash with your religion because I'm a Christian man. But it's like, mm, okay, now I think I've got some some good hold on my on my beliefs and my relationship with the Lord. So I don't think it's going to really crash that for me. But again, it's I'd like John had alluded to, I think they're starting to feed us little bits and pieces out to finally come to more disclosure uh, and let us know with the simple fact of them saying that um, they are real and we don't know what they are. We have we have seen some, we've documented it, but we don't know what they are. Just that alone has already raised a level of, of awareness and I think in the world um, that is preparing people for the fact that, you know, could they be from, you know, another country or something? Possibly, but we just don't know at this point. And so I, th- I think that's, that's uh, taken us to the next level, but it now allows us to be able to talk about this and validate things like what you saw. Does that mean that was a, 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 a UFO from alien technology? We don't know. I have no idea. But as as the terminology for UAP means, it is unidentified to you. You don't know what it was. So for you, it was a UAP. You don't know what it was. You could not determine what it was. So for you, it's a UAP. I mean, simple, simple stated that way. So, yeah, we're, we've got, uh, we're going to have some interesting uh, stuff on that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Were you going to say something else, Christian? Sorry. Oh, no, I no. no. I, okay. I loved uh, going to the UAP report. I think it was 13% of the encounters they listed. It was very narrowly scoped. Mm-hmm. I think it was 13% of the encounters. And I love the phrase that they use um, because, you know, they had to go through really months of watering down what phrase they were going to use. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it was like 13% of these encounters, we cannot even begin to test equipment on understanding what it is because we are in need of scientific advancements. Mm. And I thought that was very interesting is that they are conceding that we, partic- we particularly in these, in these 13% of 
these UAP encounters from these pilots, we do not have the knowledge right now scientifically to understand more about what was seen right there. Yep. And so exactly. the overwhelming majority were within our confines of the, the knowledge we have of physics, but we just didn't identify it. And I like the fact that they threw in one that they said, yep, it's a weather balloon. Right. We didn't get Project Blue Book where they explained every single one is swamp gas. <laughs> swamp gas. I always love that one. Yeah, those are the orbs that you know show up right. out of a lake or a swamp or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And I guess there is some truth to that. I, I'm not going to discount that, but for sure. So, wow, that's really neat. I, that's a that's a great that's a great great story. I'm glad you shared that with us because that's. Thank you, yeah, for sure, because that's a really uh, um, and that, and that's if I had seen that myself, um, I would have been you know thinking the same thing. So thank you for sharing that. I, we're gonna have a lot of fun with this. I think the uh, coming up and like I say, we're we're gonna I think we're doing our first one on August thirteenth, Friday the thirteenth. Uh, you know, as it goes, and we're gonna be discussing all kinds of different things like that. But uh, anyway, um, I did want to say before we wrap up here, I did want to say that I know that you were um, for your research working on your documentary. Um, you had mentioned that you were doing some B-roll, uh, finishing up on some B-roll for it. Um, are we close to having the documentary coming out? Is that is that going to be happening pretty soon? Very close. Okay. I, good. Um, currently, what I'm doing right now is I've converted my closet into a, a makeshift <laughs> studio. Wow. And I'm uh, shooting all the newspaper headlines. So I've got okay. a really creative way of, of getting that done. Final touches being added. Mm -hmm. I'm still switching around a little bit of the story, but... Everything involving the story is done. It's now just final touches and then right. uh, sending it to a friend um, in Italy for scoring. And then people can enjoy it. Okay. And you, uh, if you are, are you still looking for some, you know, some support, some funding on this as well? I know you had one site that was up um, that is now, I guess that has ended. Um, are you still hoping to get some funding to help with this as going forward or? And if yeah, so, uh, where, where can people contribute if they'd like to? Um, I'll, I'll never turn it down. Every bit helps. Um, but uh, the the best place to donate would be through the film PayPal. Probably we've, okay. we've run a few uh, kind of crowdfunding uh, projects in the past, which are, are now long obsolete. So if you Google it, that may be what you come across. But uh, the, the film PayPal would be found at Sunken Silver Film at gmail.com okay uh, so that's, that that's where we take any donations now um it, it always helps i think our last bit will be used on scoring and and uh just shooting the last few uh pieces of b-roll that we need to mm -hmm. okay great so uh, folks we'll get that linked for you if you'd like to uh I think uh, we posted the link website. Oh, okay. Linda, I just saw Linda posted that up there. She said right. that uh, we have posted that uh, uh, link that goes to PayPal. Okay, great. Yeah, Indiegogo is defunct now. Yep, okay. So, yeah, if anybody would like to help out uh, in his uh, getting this documentary out, and I tell you, for one, I'm really looking forward to seeing this, uh, this story of Lafitte and the whole eastern part of Texas uh, and the Lake Hendricks. Uh, Hendricks Lake is fascinating. I'd love to be watch this uh, when it comes out. And uh, I applaud you for going through all the work you've done uh, to make this happen. And and for being on uh, Beyond Oak Island, I think it was fascinating. Um, and I like I said, I just can't wait to see this. So hopefully we'll we'll get some uh, 
we'll get to see this very soon. And and like I said, you know, let us help to be your outlet on this. Uh, when it is time for it to be released, let us know, and we'll make an announcement here for you as well. I know we don't have the uh, the type of numbers that uh, some of the groups out there do, but we whatever we can do to help you in this, uh, we will be more than happy to help you out. We sure will. Yep. Thank you. So, uh, man, it's been fascinating, uh, Christian. Thank you so much for coming on with us again today. Um, Thank you. I, I just find that your your enthusiasm and everything in this is is fascinating. Um, and great, and in the in the simple fact that you were like, and I wanted to say this earlier, and I had, and I we got off onto other things, but the fact that you're so much like Rick Lagina in the fact that you know, would you love to go down into Hendricks Lake and come up with a chest full of gold or, or or silver bars or whatever? Sure, we all would, but the fact that you are interested in the story and proving as much of it as you can and getting those facts and figures is a treasure in itself. Just like Rick Lagina always says, the who, what, why, when, and where. And I applaud you for that because I can tell that that's what's more important to you is getting to the results of the story than anything else. And that, thank you so much for being that way. And that's what makes you so very credible in what you're doing. And I applaud you and I hope that you continue with that. Uh, and we look forward to great things coming out. Let us know when that's yep. uh, going to be out. We'll, we, yeah. uh, we'll have you back on for more discussion about it. Yeah, absolutely. When Thank it's you. Out, you know. Thank you. And I'll, yeah. I'll keep watching uh, through the window, see if I see anything for next time. Okay. Yeah, for sure. We're definitely going to have you on the show. There's no doubt about that. That's that's coming up. You're, you're going to have to be part of this. And we're going to get Maddie Blake to come on and talk about some of his experiences as well. That was a neat thing that he had said too real quick is that he had said there's a difference between a paranormal uh, investigator and a paranormal or, or UAP, whatever, experiencer. You're an experiencer. I'm an experiencer, whether it be paranormal or UAPs. I've seen what I would say as a UAP. So that changes you. Once that happens in your life, you're changed. And whether you have interest in it or not, uh, if you're a person that does have interest, you're going to want to keep going that direction and find out more. And that's me. I, I'm one of those kind of people. And I, I'm glad you are too. All right. Going to wrap things up here, folks. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, we've had a great time with Christian Roper and uh, getting uh, some more information about what he's doing and what's coming out here in the future. We'll let you know as soon as we do. But thank you for coming and joining with us today. And again, thank you so much, Christian, for all the hard work you do and coming on the show here for us. Um, any last parting words you'd like to say? <laughs> uh, I, I always um, enjoy coming on these. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite things to do is share stories. It's the ultimate uniter, yep. you know, across yeah. different generations and cultures. If you sit down and share a story, someone will always uh, cherish that. So I love doing these and I love uh, kind of providing the adventure in people's lives that uh, they can experience themselves. And yep. I was that's what was so cool about being on TV was that people could kind of live through me. So yep. really appreciate thank coming you. on. Uh, yep. Thank right. you very much. Yep. All right. And for uh, Jan uh, Anderson out there working hard in the chat and also Linda Simpson, thank you guys so much for all the hard work you do. Again, thanks folks for being here with us today and we'll catch you next time here on the Curse of Oak Island and beyond live stream. Bye-bye now. <laughs>